the past, the present, the future. This is Friday Night Fright. What the planet is listening to. Hello and welcome to another episode of Friday Night Fright. I'm your host Ian Austin, the man who frights you every Friday night or Friday morning or Friday afternoon or some other time whenever you listen to this podcast. But we're back with another brand new episode, episode 48, 49, 49, episode 49. And this episode is going to be a bit different. It's going to start a chain of things being a bit different with Friday Night Fright. Namely, I'm going to do segments. I'm going to do a bunch of different things each week instead of one particular thing. And on this edition, oh, you're in for a treat. You're going to get my thoughts on Once Upon Time Hollywood. You're going to get a mini review of The Exorcist. And you're also going to get the Scream 5 reboot or part one of that. It'll be a continuing part of the next few weeks. Regarding Once Upon Time Hollywood, you're going to get two parts of that. You're going to get the review and then going to get spoiler review. So that'll be interesting. But anyway, that'll be coming up after a brief word from my sponsor. So, Once Upon Time Hollywood. I've just seen it. I have seen it on Saturday 17th of August 2019. And I absolutely, positively, 100% loved the movie. Wow. <laughs> uh, for lack of a better word, wow seems to sum up quite nicely. It's a incredible movie it's genuinely incredible it's one of those movies you watch you come out of in like before you even go into it rather you sort of like i hope i enjoy it i saw a few trailers and bits and pieces and i was like it's tarantino i don't really go and see tarantino movies at cinema very much if ever because they usually don't get to Elspree or they do get here for a very short time and stuff movies out and i want to see more and sometimes it doesn't work out this time oh my god it worked out and i'm so glad it did because guys this this is a movie and a half like good god damn like you know they don't release movies like this very often and to be honest movies in general don't seem that are actually good don't seem to be released that often but when they are you've got to jump out and see them in this one Oh, it took me right back. It took me right back to the the origins of me really getting in cinema, which I think I've gone over a few other times on podcasts. But really, like when I first started really getting in cinema as an art form and watching a lot of different movies and a lot of interesting movies and learning about history of cinema, whether it be film theory or film actuality, you know, like history or theory. And really getting to grips of things with it is something that you kind of need to really appreciate this movie for what it is, which is both a love letter to Sharon Tate and a love letter to Singmar in general. And TV, and TV too, a bit less degree TV, but it really does serve up as a love letter to Singmar and Sharon Tate. And it's kind of good. I mean, I won't go and spoil this now. I'll be in the part coming up a bit later, but... The movie really does a good job remind people that Sharon Tate wasn't someone who just died in a disgusting attack by a bunch of reprobate scumbags. You know, she was more than that. She was a person. She was an actress. She was someone who put a lot of hard work to set a career up and it was prematurely taken from her. Which is tragic. But this movie serves to remind us that she was more than just a murder victim. As, as you know, is nice. And without saying too much, um, when going to spoiler section, we'll find out if events transpired exactly in Tarantino's universe as they did in real life. I won't say anything for now, but uh, what, what I will say is the ending is fantastic. Take from that what you will. But the whole movie's great. It's just Tarantino's thing is he does it so effortlessly. He makes the rest of us who either make movies or aspire to make movies, he makes us look at the screens we're watching them and think, how the fuck are we going to top this? It's the same thing, feeling I had watching Magnolia. You're watching like Tarantino or Paul Thomas Anderson or Coen Brothers. You're literally watching masters at work make these movies that are beyond, beyond like words. Like it's art. Like 
you watch something like Big Lebowski by Coen Brothers, and on the surface it's a genre movie, but beyond that, it's sort of like it's a genre hopping masterclass in taking tropes and using them against you. It's in Tarantino's the same thing for this movie, where it's a western, it's a horror movie, it's a deconstruction of television movie industries, it's a reconstruction of TV movie industries, it's a love letter to the 60s, it's a love letter to an actress. It's a comedy in points, of points, it's an introspective drama. And that's one of the other things about this movie that I really like. It feels spiritually like a child born of equal past Jackie Brown Pop Fiction. Like Pop Fiction, it's a movie which deals with an ensemble cast. Obviously some people are beating characters beating others, but it's an ensemble cast of sorts. But at the same time, it has that Jackie Brown thing of taking material and treating it with a bit more reverence than you'd expect. Because the majority of the movie, not a lot happens in terms of happening. It's very character and introspective based and set and scene. But at the same time, it's really got that Altman feel of it doesn't feel like much is happening, but you're so ingrained in vibe and the atmosphere and the nuances of it and learning so much about characters and there's a lot of deep characterization here you know and playing with the idea of structure and whatnot which i'll again go into more in the spoiler section but it's tarantino's mask class and that he creates movies that feel like novels but still feel at the same time like a novel they still have the feel on the movie tarantino's so great at that because he visually he's one of those guys who not only writes stuff but manages to visualise it in the most interesting way possible. Even scenes of characters driving, which on the surface seem very boring, can inform characterization, character and true character. The way someone drives, the way someone acts, the way someone lives and breathes in a universe. And Tantino's great at that. He makes the universes feel like they're lived in. It's all little touches, you know, it's just... It's cliche to say at this point, but he's so far beyond most normal directors. And at the same time, this movie, I would argue, suits his sensibilities more than most. One, because he does a much more mature job with the characters than he normally does. If something like Hateful Eight, it's very over the top, it's very obviously Tarantino, and this feels like he's paired it back a bit. Despite the fact that it's one of his longer movies, he's repaired it back and showing a bit more respect I think because of the fact that he's dealing with real life people and he really does a good job that and the whole atmosphere of it is just the way that he's constantly got this uncurrent menace and malice with the Manson family so that even when things are showing us how Hollywood works and actors and there's lots of true trueness to what he depicts although Bruce Lee bit you know it's a bit I'll get into that spoiler section this way, but it's a bit, you can you make case that there's something there that might not necessarily be accurate, but again, it's Tarantino's exaggerated universe. And he also plays with the ideas that people have of the stuff that he makes. And at the same time, he loves these characters. He loves this universe, this like slightly warped universe he's made because obviously there was never Rick Dalton or Cliff Booth in actuality so their existence means that this isn't one-to-one exactly what happened but he loves this universe and the other thing I love about Tarantino is Tarantino is clearly someone who could take these characters of Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton and he could make a fucking whopper movie or TV series about the entire history because he cares about his characters he wants to know where they've been, where they're going, and what's happened, but also create a sense of ambiguity. He loves creating mysteries that viewers can observe and come up with their own theories for. He's really, really good at that. And I think special praise should go to the acting here. And I'm going to say, personally, I think best job in this entire movie of done by an actor, as one character says in the movie, the term actress feels redundant, the best actor in this movie is Margot Robbie for me. And I know it's going to confuse a lot of people because if you've seen this movie, she doesn't get a lot of dialogue per se. But I think actually the idea that someone needs lots of dialogue, you know, it's it's a stupid criticism. You don't need dialogue, lots of dialogue. Acting is not just dialogue. Acting is emoting and personality and 
putting out a feel for a fully realized character i don't think margot robbie does that she has this she gives this uncurrent throughout movie of this woman who's one comes across as just a lovely human being but two we get sense of everything from her without a need for her to constantly tell us what's going on which is great that's what acting is you know acting's not just delivering exposition acting's about conveying character she does a great job that as leo does with um rick dalton and brad pitt like i'm not his fan brad pitt in general but i find his worth tantino he it's like it kicks off something in him we get to show a bit more life and that's nowhere is that more evident in this movie when you're watching it and then looking and seeing him in trailers for stuff like Ad Astra, which doesn't seem realising that Brad Pitt's got a knowing sense of humour to him and you've dragged that out of him. He's better in roles than to ask him to play a complete serious character. Like, you know, Brad Pitt is the personification of a character acting a leading actor's body, you know. Everyone wants him to play a lead character, but he's actually better playing these sorts of characters, which are technically leads, but leads in an ensemble. And Leo Capio does a really good job for Rick Dalton. I won't say it's his best um, performance, but I would say, well, maybe it would be in retrospect, because there's a lot about character which is fascinating. This sort of lowbrow Clint Eastwood style character, you know, what Clint Eastwood could be like if he wasn't shrewd with his choices. But yeah, I mean, the, the only thing that disappointed me acting wise was uh, Al Pacino. And not that he's bad, but I think. This movie being such a distillation and more introspective character style for a Tarantino movie works against Al Pacino because Al Pacino with some of that trademark quickfire Tarantino dialogue would be amazing. But he doesn't get that here. It's not an Al Pacino's bad. He actually delivers a rather good performance. It's just like you can see him delivering that Peter Pat, Chris Walken style Tantino, Sammy Jackson style Tantino dialogue, he's nailing that. In fact, he ha hasn't been given that. It's a little disappointing in that regard, but that's probably my own disappointing movie. I think the ramping up tension, the slow progressive beat to the finale, the unbelievably awesome use of narration, that amazing like Steve McQueen like sum up of some history of some characters and just some of the imagined spots and things like that like the i've haven't i laugh at movies fair bit but this one actually tickled me seriously and just that's all i can really say about spoiling movie but perfect perfect movie in just about every regard um and i will discuss the spoiler aspects shortly i think I'll do the screen 5 recap and then I'll get the spoiler part at the end of the review so for now definitely go see Once Upon a Time Hollywood if you can I'd say easily the best movie I've seen this year and I'd rank it pretty high on Tarantino's list of movies in general but that's neither here nor there I'll be back in just a second with the first part of the screen 5 pitch So I've just watched Exorcist for the first real time ever. I did watch a bit of it not too long ago um, when it's on Amazon Prime and stopped because I'm sick of movies starting in different countries and it seemed like it would take ages to get to the actual core of the story because I was very impatient a few months ago and I started watching it and also I was watching it for free and I'm kind of one of those weird people. Sometimes when I watch something free, I really get into it. Other times I can't get into it. It's this bizarre paradox. It's hypocrisy, contradiction. But actually paying for movies, sometimes I'm more invested in it than if I am if I'm watching it for free on Amazon Prime. So it's kind of weird I've never actually watched this because I'm relatively big in horror movies. There's a lot I haven't watched, but there's a lot I have. And this wasn't one of the ones I had watched. That's fascinating. I know more about this movie from reading books like um, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, for example, where they go into history of movies and history of Winfrey King's career. And in fact, I know a lot about behind the scenes. Sorry, I know a lot about behind behind scenes making of this movie. A lot more than I actually know about movie or did. So watching movies and its experience because I knew for obviously 
bits like Ellen bursting, um, being dragged along the floor and suffering a back injury which plays to this day. I know the abuse that we're freaking through on F1 Pine scenes. I knew they'd try and find people who convincingly play priests. I know about, um, God, what's her name? Linda. Oh shit, I don't remember her fucking last name. I, the one play Regan's movie. I know about her history and a very sad things have happened to her over the years. And you think I'd impact the movie a fair bit and mar the movie? And think also the fact that I'd seen Scary Movie 3, 4, where they did a repugnant um, parody of the uh, scene, the exorcism scene, and also This Is the End, which is a slightly better version of the same scene. Paradox. You think they're less in the movie, but one thing I found about genuinely good movies such as this is they don't lessen the experience of watching it. If something's that good, it can stand the test of time and also stand up through parodies. It's like I, I saw Mafia before I saw The Godfather, Mafia being, of course, a parody of Lloyd Bridges of The Godfather. And it didn't make Godfather any worse. In a lot of ways, it made it better, you know? It's like, he did, you got reference points from the parody and then sort of the actual serious theme version of it. And it left up to expectations and surpassed them. Godfather, obviously, one of the best movies of all time. And I would argue in a lot of ways that this is also up there. I think I'd need to watch it more to get really a sense of whether it actually belonged up in the usher long of movies. Definitely it's one of the better horror movies. But, and also I'd love seeing Sigma because obviously, I know I say obviously a lot, but that's fine because obviously... <laughs> You know, because I would have loved to have seen this in cinema, obviously, <laughs> obviously, I wasn't born at the time, but if they ever brought it back to, like, Prince Charles in London or even Aylesbury, I'd love to go and see this in cinema. I think it really messed with your head. And I think also this kit started the trend, trend, trend of um, possession movies and also sort of the spiritual horror thing. Obviously, there were movies like that before this, but this seems to be the big one which kit started it and spawned a lot of terrible movies came after it like Ouija movies for example movies that tried doing similar something and also Conjuring movies which are a higher example of the sort of similar theme but aren't quite as good this is quite unquestionably the granddaddy or grandma if you will the grandparent I think is a better term of these sorts of movies because this is taking the stock form of an ideal though it kind of develops stock form a lot of people would say taking stock form of it and elevating it into art because we can get down to it this is quite a simple story someone is possessed they call in the medical team to diagnose the patient they don't think it's possession and then find the act three the exorcism quite a simple idea three acts you know the bat story medical side being dismissed and then the exorcism it's into three acts but does do that but there's something better than a lot of horror movies do even nowadays it feels lifting which is something when freaking points out in the introduction they want this to feel real and real it can mean a lot of different things real can mean boring and mundane and matter of fact or it can mean we're going to take this story and treat it completely seriously which is a chris nolan tactic where it's you take these outlandish stories and you treat them realistically but they're not boring it's one thing that's annoyed about Hereditary. Hereditary had no idea what sort of movie it was. It kept floating between two ideas, and as a result, it never stuck. This sticks because it takes one thing and takes it at absolute face value. You have to believe that this is really happening, because if you don't believe this is really happening, it's not scary. But at the same time, realizes this is a movie, and it has to feel like a movie, and it has to feel like things are happening and going somewhere it's something i found when i was watching once upon a time in hollywood you know that movie in theory not much happens same as this movie in theory not much happens but you're getting the essence of the universe conveyed in a unique interesting way so that when stuff does start happening you've worked up to it it's what a lot of people don't seem to understand nowadays because they feel like i'm bored nothing's happening no 
if you're immersed in the universe, if you create a dynamic like this movie creates of unease and you slowly progress that until you've hit the point of now shit is going to get real, to quote Bad Boys 2, and in this movie shit definitely gets real. And it's just really, really good at creating sense of unease. A lot of horror movies, they don't have patience to do that. They need jump scares, they need bombastic moments, they need all this shit. It's nice and refreshing to see a movie like this where they can progressively create the sense of horror and dread. And sense of horror and dread and it takes you through to the last act when things start getting ridiculous and over the top. In some ways, but in other ways, they stay the course. We get to see the progression of the possession rather than having it all thrown us up thrown at us first step and that's something that a lot of horror movies nowadays don't understand they feel like they need to throw a scare at you after 10 pages it's a stupid Weinstein attitude of when they're making scream they said like you need a murder every 10 pages you don't you need to create a sense of unease now maybe that's a murder in a horror movie maybe it's not but you don't have to conform to set rules like that. You can create your own vibe. And this definitely creates his own vibe. Because Gwyn Freaking, as if anyone's read He's Ride Raging Balls will know, it was very influenced by French New Wave. And also movies of power torts. There's a certain amount of functionalism to there, but there's also a certain amount of metatextualness to there. And also a sort of set of freewheelingness compared to the plot. No competitive script because this was based on novels. So they obviously had quite concrete concepts of where the story is going to go, but it's how we get there that matters. And how we get there is we get some incredible acting, some really tense, powerful scenes that in most horror movies be treated as a throwaway. Now, I have to say there is a certain amount of hypocrisy in terms of this on the surface because I hate movies normally down that route of oh no someone's been oh no we've got to explore the medical side oh no we've got to explore this this and this and lots of scenes with doctors and stuff like that but reason I object them is normally they're fucking awful they're really badly shot acted and written this movie is maybe maybe it's influenced by Winfrey King being for lack of a better word unpleasant offsetting demanding things be done his way and maybe actors in this movie weren't particularly appreciative or didn't particularly enjoy that's a behind the scenes foundation and a lot of ways you can say that wouldn't pass muster nowadays and you'd be right too but at the same time you can't deny that yielded positive results he made a very powerful very very brutal very atmospheric horror movie with performances that feel unilaterally real for lack of a better word they feel genuine and it's something that nowadays you know people make movies and they don't seem they don't seem care nothing feels genuine nothing feels honest you know it's like people who grew up watching movies making movies and that's fine you know if you're going to make something that veers into the fantastical or absurd or abstract that's fine it just has to be good and a lot of them aren't good nowadays you go back to something like Ouija or Truth or Dare or something like that and the inherent goofiness not embraced you know it's if you make something like Gremlins nowadays it would instantly be wink wink note note and but you have to have those elements of horror movie which are rooted in the actualities of what situation would convey I mean, again, this is a very simple movie. Nowadays, they go too over the top with bat story and demon and shit like that. And I know I've been told that they do in The Exorcist 2. They go more into bat story of demon. And that's fine. But I like fleeting glimpses we've got here of something supernatural. And the relationship between demon and Marion and Karis and mum and stuff like that. And that's nothing, actually. To watch this movie first, you would assume that it would be entirely about Regan and Chris but it's not it's actually split between them and Father Karras who writes the movie with a heart it might not otherwise have because you get sort of the redemption for the priest you know who feels he's abandoned his mother and he's trying to get in terms of that and in some ways redeems and safe in the end for the movie and that's that 
balanced by the Regan Chris story. So you get two interesting stories. Rather than as most horror movies do it nowadays, they don't really give anyone an interesting story, let alone two interesting driving stories throughout the movie. And at the same time, you get Father Marin in the background, which is a terrific Matt von Sydrow performance. He is a um, really, really great actor. Lots of gravitas, gravitas, you know. He's not in this movie a lot, but when he is, he really does a great job with it. So yeah, I, I love this movie. I, I had a great time watching it. I mean, I'd, I'd say parts of it, I don't think age badly is the right word because, you know, I, I, I feel like if you judge a movie from today's standards, this wouldn't be made. But I think that's a failing by today's standards that something like this won't be made because this pairs back the plot to the essential elements, same way Godfather did pairs back the plot to the essential elements and that's a unique distinctive not a tur approach to it because i think an auteur approach suggests that the director has a specific style that fluctuates through all of his movies and while win freaking does have a very pared down visual style i think this he brought something to this movie he didn't bring to his other movies which is fascinating and instead, I do recommend F1 Read, Easy Riders, Raging Balls. It's a terrific book on the film industry. You know, and something that will inform your knowledge of movies like this and Godfather and even Quentin Tantino's Once Upon a Time Hollywood. So yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this. I thought it's very powerful. A very, very brutal movie to watch. Very uncomfortable, but in a good way. And, you know, obviously I have watched an updated, enhanced version to some degree, but I think the effects and the acting and tension all hold up. And also in fact that it feels in some way like a sports movie where it's being up to a big fight at the end of the movie, you know. I love that sort of thing. It's why I like about Dark Knight Rises too. It's this, you know, character who's been beaten down by life but comes back and they get their big heavyweight boxing match. Heavyweight tile match even. Batman's was against Bane's Bane and Father Karras was against fucking some douchebag demon habiting a little kid's body. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I don't necessarily know whether I jump in sequels or done bit of completists I might. Don't know if they'll be done for this podcast, but who knows, you know. Who knows? Anyway, um up next just after the half time handball stuff or whatever I'd come up with would be the Screen 5 reboot and then following after that would be Once Upon a Time Hollywood spoiler discussion. So back in just a sec. So here we go. Screams written by Ian Austin which is a hypothetical Screen 5, not really hypothetical and written in screenplay format or as much as I can. Anyway this is the opening which I've written this week. It's 20 A5, 25 A5 notepad pages. So here goes. EXT Sassatoon County, Twilight. Shard New York and New Jersey by another name minus the Springsteen. A sleepy suburb beneath a red sky. Betty, off screen. I know a shortcut. A lock is tampered with. Skillful use of toothpick meriting positive results. Josh, off screen. Are you sure about this? The lock falls. Betty lowers her hood. She's 20, a self-sustained woman who bridges the low, mid and upper divide. Betty. Goddamn right I am. Page 2. Interior hallway. As dim as lit can be. A torch lights the way, illuminates where as can be without an alarm going off. Betty takes point. Josh follows. He's smart, too smart for his own good. Guy with plans upon plans, but no contingency for his need to look cool. Josh, you've been here before, right? Betty, nope. She walks on. He doesn't. The sound of Nautber footsteps gives her pause. Betty. Just stuff is all. Just stuff is all, even. You know, occasionally I'll get dialogue wrong. Josh, I heard rumours. Betty shines a literal light on Josh's features. Betty, rumours? You go back far enough, people talk about wise men and bad gifts. Now, this place is still open. No, sorry, I'll repeat that. Rumours? You go back far enough, people talk about wise men and bad gifts. Now, this place still be open if it's rumour. 
With a right chuckle, she pushes through a door into the old unknown. Josh takes many a deep breath. Josh, don't think cool, be cool. That woman chose you. That means something. You don't think that right now, Joshy boy. He composes himself, follows her into interior, the slasher wing. Before our eyes, we take in cacophony of horror iconography from through years, made possible by moonlight passing through a skylight. Betty pops off her torch. She says a familiar-looking hockey mask, replete with blue markings on either side. Betty, oh, Roy. Josh winces at the sight of a rather sharp glove. Josh, the fuck? Dot, dot, dot. Betty stares with awe at heavily scarred good guy doll. Betty, friend to the end, eh? Betty and Josh continue perusing room, both enjoying nightmares in their own way. Blissfully unaware they are being watched by... Sorry, blissfully unaware they are being watched by William. A tall, meticulously dressed man with a real presence. This is his castle, and his utterly calm as the force of nature can be. William, fascinating, aren't they? Josh almost leaks out of his skin, the, se- yeah, the first step on the road to a future heart attack. Betty is less obviously freaked. Betty, who are you? Question mark. William replies, a humble curator. Betty, curator? I thought this place shut down. William, it closed. He slowly approaches her. Continuing, but someone versus you knows that true horror never dies. They trade a pointed, knowing look. Josh catches a glimpse of something, something which sends a shiver down his spine. Uh, Bets. Yeah, replies Betty. I I, I gotta go. Uh, her, she replies. Betty's too intrigued by the displays that William is showing to her, enraptured by the images that surround her, the iconography-filling room. Josh lingers for a second, then quickly leaves. A ghost-faced killer mask looms from behind display glass, the white visage of metatextual death. Interior hallway. Josh pushes through the door, stomping along with sheer-like intensity. No, 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 says Josh. He nears the end, not caring that it's eerily dark when the lights come on. Startling Josh, revealing the walls of nightmarishly abstract pictures of assorted horror icons. Jesus, says Josh. He takes a beat. I don't even like horror movies. He startled again when his phone rings. From inside his trouser pocket, he answers without thinking. Hello? Hello? Who is this? replies Josh. A good Samaritan. I can't give that voice, I won't try. That's Ghostface, by the way. Josh, how'd you get this number? Ghostface, from a dream within a dream. Josh, uh huh. Look, I saw that movie. I wasn't impressed. Thanks for calling. He hands up. Were any of us impressed with Inception the first time we saw it? I don't think so. Josh. Not the evening I expected. Not best on dialogue, but what can you do? Josh goes through the door him Betty entered through. He reaches for the handle, which doesn't budge an inch. The fuck, says Josh. He bats up in surprise. His phone rings again. An unknown number. Josh shakily answers. Hello? That was rude, says Ghostface. Josh, it's been a strange evening. Ghostface, don't be flippant, Josh. The shakiness disappears, a sly smile forming on Josh's face. God damn it, says Josh. Ghostface, what? Josh, you son of a bitch. Ghostface, you've lost me. Josh, nice try, Betty. He nears the other door. Ghostface, I'm not belly, but if I was belly, how could I be a son of a bitch? Josh reaches for the handle, but again, there's no give. Ghostface, what's the matter, Josh? You're feeling trapped? This isn't funny, Betty, says Josh. Ghostface, do I sound like Betty? The lights dim, quickling without fanfare. Josh, no. Who do I sound like, says Ghostface? Josh, I don't know. 
Ghostface. Yes, you do. Here, I'll remind you. What's your favourite? Jesus, I really can't do it. What's your favourite scary movie? Horror through Josh's eyes. Familiarity flooding his senses. Oh, fuck. Ghostface, answer my question. Josh, I, I, I can't. Ghostface, careful, Joshy boy. There's penalties for passing go. Josh starts to whimper. Ghostface, I said answer the question. Josh takes a deep, deep breath. Josh, Halloween. Ghostface, good, why? Josh, they, they, they beat Michael at the end of every film. Ghostface, but he comes back. He endures. You can't kill an idea. <laughs> You're doing good. Just two more questions. No, says Josh. The lights pop back on. Tears roll down Josh's face. Ghostface, do you remember Woodsbra? Josh nods, consumed by sheer panic. Ghostface, non-verb communication doesn't work. You have to answer the question. Josh, yes. Ghostface, what do you remember? Josh, you killed them. Ghostface, no, but I learned. I learned from every massacre. They all went left, but I'm going right. Josh, why? Ghostface, this is the first act, Josh. It's too early if you play detective. Josh slumps down by the wall, rattled. Josh, oh God. Ghostface, final question, Josh, no. Ghostface, yes, and it's a doozy. He takes a beat. What door am I at? Josh looks to where him Betty entered. Door A. Ghostface, door A? Josh looks to where him Betty ventured inside museum. Door B. Ghostface, or door B. And remember, live or die, Josh. Josh, I hate those fucking movies. Ghostface, laughs down phone. <laughs> Ghostface, choose. Josh looks at door A, which suffers from a turning handle. Josh turns to look at door B, which also suffers from similar inflection. Josh stares absently at the wall. Josh, why would I choose? Ghostface, it's better than me choosing, Josh. Josh, I'm, I'm dead either way. Ghostface, there it rules. Pick the right door and you walk free. Josh, and the wrong door? I'll cut you to fucking ribbons, Josh. Josh doesn't look sated by that comment. Josh, wonderful. He sighs, fuck it. He stands, looks at Dore. Josh, Dore is. Ghostface, are you sure? Josh, fuck you. He hands up. Josh, okay, 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 okay. He rubs his eyes. Josh, focus, two doors. One leads to stabbing, one to freedom, think. 50-50 chance going it right. Come on, Josh, come on, Josh. He looks at Dore, radiating on the spine. Josh, I came in that way. Could likely make dash for it if need be. It's right by a parking lot. He looks at door B, also ominous. That's where Betty was, but likely she's not there now. She was enraptured by that wind bloke. There's lots of weapons there, so I might be able to lead defence. His face says it all. It's a rotten tiebreaker. The lights turn off and on, beginning to flicker rattling and F disorientating and coffee of Christmas. So try that again. The lights turn off and on, beginning flicker flicker erratically. Fuck it. The lights turn off and on, beginning flicker erratically in an ever disorientating cacophony of creaminess. Josh, that ain't cool, man. He screams into the night. His phone rings again. Josh, I'm still thinking. Okay, fucking jeez, man. Betty replies. Josh, it's fearing her voice. Betty says, Josh. Betty, says Josh. No, Josh, Betty, Betty, Josh, Josh, are you okay? Betty, I'm scared. Josh, I know your feeling. Betty, it's so dark. Josh, where are you? Betty, I I know it's interior red room, dimly lit in red too. Betty stood by the door, phone pressed against the rear, trying to pick the lock. Betty, a weird red room. I'm trying to pick lock. Begin intercut with interior hallway. Josh, stone sure which door you venture through. Josh, any luck? Betty, no dice. Josh, shit! Betty, yeah. And then, did he call? Josh, who? Betty, you know who. Josh, Voldemort? Betty's like, this isn't Harry Potter, Josh. Come on. She drops the toothpick. Shit! 
says Betty. Josh, what happened? Betty, I dropped the... The line goes dead. Ending to cut. Interior red room. Betty, hello? He- fuck! Guttural, fuck! Betty stops, calms, enters then. Okay, think. You know horror. Sing movies. Weapons nets. What subgenre is this? Work out clues. Make connections. Her phone rings. She cautiously answers. Betty, hello? Ghostface, hi, Betty. Betty, I told you go fuck yourself. Ghostface, you did. And now Josh will pay for it. Betty, if you fucking touch him, I swear to God. Ghostface cuts her off. What's your favourite torture porn movie, Betty? Betty, what? She hears a click. On the wall was a hidden screen on which the image of Josh appears trapped in that hallway. Ghostface, his life is in your hands, Betty. Answer the question. I can't do that voice, shit. Betty, look, they all suck. Ghostface, do you really want me to choose, Betty? I'll cut the fucking ribbons. Betty sheds a single tear. I, I, I can't. Ghostface, you can. She shuts her eyes. The decision comes to her. Betty, saw. Ghostface, good, why? Betty, I don't know. Ghostface, yes, you do, Betty. Betty opens her eyes, revealing them before grim resignation. Betty, sometimes it's fun to watch the weird burn. She knows what's coming before it comes. On screen, door A opens. Josh notices, cautiously steps forward. Tears feed Betty's eyes. No, says Betty. On screen, door B opens behind Josh. Someone in full ghost face killer regalia approaching with an absurdly last knife. Tears free fall down Betty's face. She's powerless. Betty, please... On the screen, Ghostface grabs Josh by the back of his head and slowly slices long back of his neck, cutting him deeply from ear to ear. Josh falls to his knees, a pool of blood quickly forming. Ghostface stares in such a way that he almost seems to lock eyes with Betty, a tad defiantly. Betty lets the tears subside, paving way for a rage one would assume has always been there, bobbling at the surface for all of her days. Ghostface digs the knife into Josh's side, puncturing his kidney. Blood oozes out of Josh's mouth, his eyes widening even as he can feel his life fading away to naught. Betty lets out in rage scream, Aah! A guttural wail of impotent rage among loudest ever recorded. Mine wasn't, the after soon would be. Cue credits. Newspaper clippings covering the events of Scream through Scream 4 before a brief glimpse at the TV show. It's scored to Timing a Bottle by Jim Croce. Lost and Visible is an image of Sidney Prescott with question mark drawn on in red marker. And with that, that's the end of this part. I'll continue with rest next week. And coming up next, a spoiler review of One Point Timing Hollywood. Coming up just in a few seconds. And now it's time for the spoiler review, and holy shit, like, seriously, don't, stop listening now if you don't want to be spoiled for this movie, because from 30, 30 cent part, this particular part, I'm going to spoil this movie so hard, and I don't, you shouldn't be spoiled for going in, you see it cold first time. Go and see Once Upon a Time Hollywood, once you're seeing it, come back and listen to this, okay? Right? So if you're still here, sorry, spoilers coming from now, okay? What the fuck, guys? Seriously, that ending with the with, with the Mansons and oh man, like okay, so we're gonna start a bit early in the movie to set a bit of context for this. So there's a scene in this movie you should have seen moved by now, and you've come back, you've enjoyed it, you've dug it, and you won't hear me discuss some spoiler aspects of it. That's fine. That scene, that imagined spot with a highly fictionalized concept in story and out of Bruce Lee and Cliff Booth getting in fight wow that like I know it's got a bit of controversy there but I loved it I thought it was amazing I thought it it went back a bit you know it's it just I, I understand people are upset because it portrayed Bruce Lee in a negative way but I'd argue one it's not necessarily exactly as it happened and two it was just a fun scene. It's just like a really weird, warp, fun, random way to show us that Cliff is a trained fighter. I thought it's a fascinating way you go about it and very silly and very fun. So, and also I thought it's a really good bit of misdirection because obviously it makes us think, oh my God, Bruce Lee, 
and Cliff have some history. Bruce Lee obviously trains Mark, trains Sharon Tate. So is that good? Come play in climax? No, it's not at all. Because the point of seeing was just that Cliff was a really, really effective fighter and could hold his own against Bruce Lee. So obviously, Colson at the end of the movie when the fucking Manson family break into Rip Dalton's house instead of Sharon Tate's and history changes and he murders the fuck after Manson's and I was watching us like oh my god this is amazing because it's one of those things where everyone suspect that was what would happen or a variation of that happened some people thought Sharon Tate and Bruce Lee fend off Manson's and they could have gone that way but I love the idea that the Manson's where you shouted that by Rick and then went to his house and got fucked up by Cliff and Rick with a fucking flamethrower. What? Like, amazing. So good. Like, one of the coolest things I've ever seen in cinema. I know, I know that sounds weird, but the cathartic of Tarantino being like, right, I'm going to make a movie that's a love letter to Sharon Tate and Hollywood in general. And I'm taking fucking... And his resolve to take Sharon Tate away from those fucking asshole Manson pieces of shit and say I'm in, I'm creating a universe where she lived fuck you Manson's in my universe Sharon Tate lived happily ever after he made he fucking weaponized cinema to change history and yes I know in actuality she sadly did die but Tantino fucking used cinema as a tool to create a universe, his universe, where she never died. I, I, like, I cannot explain to, personally, that shit's moving in so many ways. Like, the idea that she got, hap- I, yes, you know, not actually happened, but the idea that there is, like, a happy ending for her in his universe, that's that to me like that's quite emotional like I genuinely thought that was a really powerful moment you know in so many ways because it means that all his movies you go back and watch them you go back and watch Reservoir Dogs Pulp Fiction you know all of those movies and Sharon Tate lives in those movies as far as I know she lives she gave birth she's probably divorced Roman Glansky because I don't think he would have been able to stop from fucking his life up in real life. And, you know, she's still like, that's cool. No, that's really cool. And it's one thing I think people need to recognise about Tarantino's work. That he's actually... Gen- I know the allegations against him and I'm not disputing them. But he is the absolute fucking best in terms of making movies which are genuine pop pop culture art he really is and I always think a lot of this I get the impression this movie was probably I mean I don't want to say it's related to Furman but I wouldn't be surprised if maybe this movie's no reaction to his sadness that their sort of friendship broke up you know I mean obviously there's more to it than that but I don't know, I can't get that vibe. But just the whole thing, like the scenes of Rick Dalton shooting TV show two were amazing, were incredible. Just the prolonged scenes. People don't realise how difficult it is to do stuff like that in a movie, to stop moving, show scenes from TV show within movie. And Tantino does it that. And I'd happily watch a fucking mini-series of this shit on Netflix. Instantly Netflix, the UK. Why don't you have the fucking extended edition of Hateful Eight? Put on your service. You assholes. US has it. Why doesn't fucking UK have it? Come on. And, and get this shit. I want this shit to be on fucking extended mini-series. Once one time Hollywood. I want that shit. You know, I want more Michael Madsen. That's why I want more Michael Madsen and more Sharon Tate. I want more Margot Robbie Sharon Tate, you know, because that's amazing. It's just ah, oh, so good, like such a powerful, powerful finale with the reveal and ending of Sharon Tate thanking Rick Dalton and saying, "I'm so glad we met." I was like, that point, I was like, Tantino actually made the Monday fairy tale. He's used Sigma to bring back Sharon Tate. 
and like that's that's a wonderful thing and you know doesn't change happen in real life but as a fuck you to those arsehole douchebag Manson family members you know no matter what they did it's lovely that moves like this can remind us that Sharon Tate was a person lovely person by accounts a good actress who had bright future Heather and no matter what happened and it, you know you can't undo that and Tarantino reminds us that cinema immortalises people people like Sharon Tate will be immortalised by cinema and you need people being minded that you know tragedies and everything like that can't stop people us from remembering these actors and actresses fondly that's great even Bruce Lee who I guess you can say it's a bit of fun poke to him in this movie but little scenes like him training Sharon Tate in the flashback flat remind us that he's a more multifaceted character than portrayals in movies and that would go there's more to these characters than we imagine and Tantino I think does treat them with a lot of reverence but that ending I just wow so good and I I could probably talk for hours on this movie, but I don't think I will. I'll leave it here and just say that ending is one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in cinema. And I'm so glad I watched this movie. And I hope you watch I hope you enjoyed watching it. If you didn't enjoy watching it, well too bad. And if you haven't watched it and just been spoiled for the entire movie, I told you not to listen, so that's on you. That's on you. This was a the best Tantino movie and I'm sure at some point I'll do a longer thing on this movie these are just my initial spoilery thoughts and I don't know what I can see at Sigma on the top this this year but I have I have hopes I have hopes I definitely have hopes <music>